This is Medieval Death Trip for Sunday, April 12th, 2015, Episode 11, How a Blood Libel Takes Root. A word of forewarning, this episode does contain some graphic description of the murder of a child. If that's not something you're up for, then you may, as Chaucer suggests, turn over to the left and chase another toddler, or skip on to a different episode. Hello, and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane, wishing you a happy opera with his shore sota. Uh, though here in Missouri, we haven't had much in the way of switched liqueur of which vertu engendered is the fleur. In fact, I've got a couple of pots of tindra cropis uh, stuck inside on my windowsill because we've still had below freezing evenings um, even just a few days ago. It looks like this week, though, we're finally coming into Chaucer's April and getting away from the wanderer's ice-rhymed walls and Hrithreosinda Hrusanbindeth Wintress Woma. Oh, and I should acknowledge that this episode is arriving a bit late, and I apologize for that. Um, And I'll also just stipulate that as we move into the end of the academic semester, the release schedule might get a little erratic, uh, but there will be new episodes. But on to today's topic. At the risk of overusing a single source, um, the fact that this episode lands shortly after Easter, uh, or would have if the recording hadn't been delayed, um, that seems like a relevant occasion to look at the actual murder of William of Norwich, as depicted in The Life and Miracles of St. William of Norwich by Thomas of Monmouth, uh, which we've looked at a couple of times before already. The murder happened at Easter, which itself helped fuel some of the reactions to it, Um, so there is a timeliness there, Uh, though I wouldn't want anyone to think I'm doing this to celebrate the anniversary of this particularly problematic alleged martyrdom. Um, And also, on a rather selfish level, uh, although I'm planning on stepping away from Thomas of Monmouth's book for a while after this and exploring a broader base of sources for the next few months, There are so many great little episodes and oddball miracles in this book that I'll be coming back to it multiple times in the future, Um, and it would be very nice to not have to rehearse the same bracketing information about the fundamental anti-Semitism of the William of Norwich legend every time I do. Uh, So with this episode in the can, I can just say, go listen to episode 11 for a detailed discussion of this problem. So what is the problem? Well, as I said in the introductions to episode 1 and to the linked episodes 7 and 8, the reason William of Norwich is deemed a saint in this text, uh, a sainthood, by the way, that's not officially recognized by the Catholic Church today, uh, this is because he was said to have been ritually murdered, and thus martyred, by the Jewish community of Norwich. His is generally regarded as the first medieval legend of child martyrdom by Jews, Uh, Several others followed, of which Little St. Hugh of Lincoln is perhaps the most familiar to English speakers, since his story is retold by Chaucer in The Prioress's Tale. In this myth of sacrificial murder emerges the phenomenon of the blood libel, which is specifically the belief that uh, Jews used the blood of Christians in Passover rites, among other things. Uh, Now, it's been pointed out by some that the legend of William of Norwich doesn't actually fit the later definition of the blood libel, because despite there being a lot of blood imagery, Thomas's depiction of the murder lacks any actual attempts at blood magic, um, nor does it have any of the cannibalistic overtones um, frequently found in later examples of the blood libel. But setting aside the precise definition of a term uh, coined much later to describe an earlier phenomenon, I think we can quite safely see this story as a clear forerunner to the kinds of legends that would emerge over the next several centuries. For our purposes, I'm going to focus primarily on the immediate aftermath of the discovery of William's body in a wood outside of Norwich. There's lots about William's life leading up to his murder we could talk about, and lots about the highly dubious testimony that surfaced months and even years after the fact, um, on which Thomas of Monmouth bases his case. And there are all kinds of fascinating political dynamics and scheming that you could build a mini-series off of uh, in this story. But that's rather too much for little old me to wrangle with today. Um, 
if we were going to stage this story as a TV mystery, today is all about the pilot episode. And as per modern mystery convention, that means it starts with the discovery of a body. Morning, Pete. Harry. She's dead. Wrapped in plastic. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on. Hold on a second, Pete. Where? In an influential article on the legend from 1984, Gavin I. Langmuir suggests that Thomas of Monmouth may be the first literary example of the classic English amateur detective who steps in to investigate a crime that the authorities have not properly solved, uh, which is an interesting way to think about this text. But uh, that said, Thomas does not structure his tale as a modern mystery writer would. Indeed, He's designed it to undermine any notion of mystery about what actually happened to William. Uh, What this means for us, though, is that as much as I would love to just start with the finding of the body in the woods, um, and that is where I'll start with the actual text for today, uh, in order to make sense of Thomas, you do need a bit of backstory. Because at the point where we'll be coming into the story, Thomas has already told us all the gruesome details of how William was murdered, um, at least according to the witnesses and evidence that Thomas has rounded up. Um, So he assumes that you already have all this information when he describes the finding of the body, which makes some of the details a bit obscure uh, if you don't. So here's the basic story. The year is 1144. William is a poor 12-year-old boy, He became an apprentice to a tanner, in which capacity he apparently did considerable business with Jewish customers, or so it was said later at least. On the Monday after Palm Sunday, a man shows up at William's house. He says he's the archdeacon of Norwich's cook, and that he wants William to come along to work for him. William gets permission from his mother, a widow, who is persuaded to let William go with the stranger after getting a little money from him to alleviate her anxiety. William disappears down the road with the stranger. The only reliable bit of information known about what happened to William after he left his house, from our point of view, is that his body was found later that week on the Saturday before Easter Sunday in Thorpe Wood outside of town. Now, what Thomas says happened between his disappearance and discovery, uh, based on extremely dubious testimony from a couple of witnesses, is that William was taken by this stranger into the house of one of Norwich's more prominent Jewish residents. There he was tortured and mock-crucified until he finally died. Then the murderers took his body out to the woods and dumped it there. Now, here's what Augustus Jessup, the co-editor and co-translator of The Life and Miracles of St. William of Norwich, along with M.R. James, uh, here's what he has to say on the subject of what happened to William, and I think it's instructive. He says, Our readers will expect some expression of opinion upon the serious question of the credibility of the story and the good faith and honesty of Brother Thomas. One fact seems certain. Namely, a boy's dead body was found in Thorpe Wood on the 24th March, 1144. How it got there, there is not a particle of evidence to show. Now, I will interpolate here a little bit more forensic information that Thomas provides. Uh, We have plenty of reason to discount his claims about precisely how William died and who did it, but the description of the wounds on William's body uh, seems to me reasonably credible, allowing for some exaggeration. Uh, The wounds would have been observed by many local witnesses whom Thomas would have known as he was writing his account uh, some five to ten years later. Thomas describes the wounds mainly in the description of the murder, And he assumes you'll know these details when we get to the discovery of the body, so I'll go ahead and give you some of his descriptions of the murder here. Uh, First, he says, For while some of them held him behind, others opened his mouth and introduced an instrument of torture, which is called a teasel, and fixing it by straps through both jaws to the back of his neck, they fastened it with a knot as tightly as it could be drawn. This teasel is later found with the body. Now, I haven't gotten a terribly clear answer from the scholarship on what precisely this teasel would have been in this context. Indeed, different scholars seem to have assumed slightly different things about it. 
Uh, Thomas's Latin word for it is simply tormentum, a thing for torture. And he says that its name in English is a teasel. We know from something Thomas says later that it's made of wood. Uh, this adds one point of clarity. So, in nature, a teasel is a big, bristly pod, like a large thistle. Uh, because they're covered in fine spines, teasels were used in cloth making to tease, hence the name, uh, to tease and dress cloth. From this use, the word teasel comes to also be used to describe a wholly man-made tool used for the same purpose. The tool usually looks uh, a lot like a modern pet brush, um, a wooden block or paddle with thin nails sticking up from one of the sides. But one could also imagine, and I say imagine here because I have no concrete evidence for this at all, uh, but one could imagine a wooden object shaped more like a botanical teasel, kind of like a pine cone or acorn-shaped bed knob, a bit of ornamental woodworking, uh, which could well be used much like a ball gag. Either way, of course, um, none of these things is something you'd want stuffed in your mouth. Thomas also says that more knotted ropes were tied tightly around William's head so that the knots would press on his forehead and temples when the ropes were tightened, uh, and that his head was shaved and pierced with thorns. Both of these details could well be rooted in examination of actual marks on the body. Uh, and finally, Thomas also finds evidence that he claims shows that the boy was quasi-crucified. He says, quote, And as we afterwards discovered from the marks of the wounds and of the bands, the right hand and foot had been tightly bound and fastened with cords, but the left hand and foot were pierced with two nails. So, in fact, the deed was done by design, that, in case at any time he should be found, when the fastenings of the nails were discovered, it might not be supposed that he had been killed by Jews rather than by Christians. Now, we'll get into this a little bit more after the text, but while we're right here, I might as well just highlight something that uh, Langmuir also points out. What Thomas is actually saying here is that the wounds don't really match up with crucifixion. There are only wounds in one hand and one foot, uh, but then he just concludes that this proves that the Jews deliberately masked the crucifixion wounds so that the, when the body was discovered, people wouldn't conclude that it had been crucified. This is the kind of deeply self-serving logic that you see applied throughout this case. Um, oh, and the last bit of medieval medical examiner info is that Thomas claims that boiling water had been poured over William's wounds to wash the blood away, uh, though it's unclear if this was a peri or post-mortem act. I have just two other quick bits of relevant background information, uh, one of which is textual and the other contextual. Context first. Jeffrey Jerome Cohen points out in a 2004 article that when Thomas is writing, many of the monstrous tropes that we associate with medieval anti-Semitism, uh, the idea that Jews were well poisoners, that the blood of an innocent was an ingredient in Passover matzo, or that they ate the flesh of Christians. Uh, these weren't developed myths yet by the mid-12th century. Um, we're going to see a kind of xenophobic mass hysteria building in today's narrative, but it is kind of interesting to bear in mind that this is a mob being whipped into a frenzy even without this more fully demonized image of the Jew that was going to start dominating popular medieval discourse in the next couple of centuries, and carry on, of course, well into the modern era. There are anti-Semitic notions certainly circulating in the mid-12th century, but they haven't quite escalated to the levels of absurd fantasy that come later. However, the Jews of Norwich were a relatively new community, the presence of Jews in England increased considerably after the Norman Conquest, with Jewish merchants coming along with the Normans and living in England under the king's own direct protection. In fact, the Norwich Jewish community had probably only come to the city about a decade before the murder, so they are still very much outsiders to the locals. Uh, indeed, Cohen argues that before the arrival of the Jews, the chief ethnic divide in Norwich uh, was between the Anglo-Scandinavian townspeople and the Norman elites who came along with the conquest. In 1144, then, the Jews come to serve as a new other that these two groups can come together to oppose, 
uh, setting aside their differences to unite as Christians against a non-Christian threat. Uh, you can see the same political function at work on a much larger scale in the Crusades, of course. The other bit of necessary background information is about a miraculous site that presages the discovery of William's body. Thomas says that on the night of Good Friday, a beam or ladder of light was observed by many townspeople that seemed to come down from the sky and touch a spot in the woods. One of the witnesses of this is a nun named Lagarda, uh, with whom our text for today will begin. The translation I'll be reading is, uh, once more, Jessup and James from 1896. The manuscript includes uh, chapter titles um, that I'll include in my reading, since they do convey some of the character of the text. Uh, and here we go with the discovery of William's body. how he was discovered, and by whom. As the Easter Saturday began to dawn, the nun of whom I have made mention, Lagarda, much disturbed by the vision of the strange light, taking with her some who dwelt with her before the sun rose, made her way to where the appearance of the light was, anxious to know what the meaning of it was, and what the Lord desired to make manifest by such tokens as these. But as she walked on, she fixed her outer bodily eyes upon the light, but the light of a divine illumination sent forth its beams in her mind. The woman went on, devoutly praying to God that he would direct her steps in the right direction to the spot where the light had been seen, and show her plainly the mystery that lay hid there. And soon, by the leading of the divine mercy through the dense tangles of the bushes, she with her friends was allowed to reach the place where she found that great treasure in very truth filled with the riches of goodness. And as she looked, lo, at the root of an oak there lay a boy, dressed in his jacket and shoes, his head shaved and punctured with countless stabs. But, struck with a womanly fear, for a while she did not dare to approach nearer. And while, with a beating heart, she wondered upon the strangeness of the form that lay there, she saw two ravens alighting upon him that were trying to satisfy the greed of their corvine voracity, and were attempting to tear him to pieces with their beaks. But they were wholly unable to touch him, or to settle upon him, but kept falling off him on this side and on that. Yet again and again, first on one side and then on the other, they tried and never could succeed but they kept on continually dropping down beside him. And in truth, as I think, with their animal stupidity, they thought that the dead body was a chance find, and that it was all right for them, after their habit, to rend it with their beak. But whom the providence of God had determined should remain unmutilated and uncorrupted, him birds and beasts could not avail to touch. At last the woman, seeing the wonderful and astounding things which were marvelously going on around the dead body, began to understand that he who lay there was certainly a person of extraordinary merit, in that he was untouched by the crows, and had been pointed out to the eyes of many by the heavenly light. It was not long before, having recovered her presence of mind, she approached, drove away the crows, and, after offering up a prayer and commending him over to the care of his Savior, she returned home with her companions, rejoicing. How he was found a second time. On that same Saturday, after sunrise, Henry de Sprouston, whom I mentioned before, the forester, mounting his horse, went into the wood to see if he could find anyone who might be doing mischief by cutting down anything in the wood without license. And it came to pass that either chance or, as I rather believe, the divine will inclined his mind as he went along towards the place where he had seen the beams of the bright light gleaming on the day before. And when he was passing hither and thither in that part of the wood, Suddenly he observed a man cutting wood, who said that he had discovered there hard by a boy who had been slain. Whereupon, going with the peasant as his guide, Henry found the boy, but who he was or how he got there he could not understand. But when he had looked at him very carefully to find out if by any chance he knew him, he perceived that he had been wounded, and he noticed the wooden torture in his mouth and becoming aware that he had been treated with unusual cruelty, he now began to suspect, from the manner of his treatment, 
that it was no Christian, but in very truth a Jew who had ventured to slaughter an innocent child of this kind with such horrible barbarity. So, observing the place very carefully and taking note of the outlook, he became certain that this was the same place where on the day before he had seen the rays of light gleaming and flashing upwards. Accordingly, when he had pondered over these things with much wondering, Henry went back and told his wife with all his household all he had seen. Then, summoning a priest, he announced to him that the body of a little innocent who had been treated in the most cruel manner had been discovered exposed in the wood, and that he very much wished to take it away from there, and, if the priest approved, to bury it in the churchyard of Sprouston. After very earnestly deliberating about the carrying out of this intention, they came to the conclusion that, inasmuch as the festival of Easter was coming next day, they should defer their arrangement till the third day, and so carry into effect their devout intention more fittingly. How he was buried in the wood. So the business of burying him was put off. But in the meantime, by one man after another telling others their several versions of the story, the rumor got spread in all directions, and when it reached the city it struck the heart of all who heard it with exceeding horror. The city was stirred with a strange excitement. The streets were crowded with people making disturbance, and already it was asserted by the greater part of them that it could only have been the Jews who would have wrought such a deed, especially at such a time. And so some were standing about as if amazed by the new and extraordinary affair. Many were running hither and thither, but especially the boys and the young men. And a divine impulse drawing them on, they rushed in crowds to the wood to see the sight. What they sought, they found, and on detecting the marks of torture in the body and carefully looking into the method of the act, some suspected that the Jews were not guiltless of the deed. But some, led on by what was really a divine discernment, protested that it was so. When these returned, they who had stayed at home got together in groups, and when they heard how the case stood, they too hurried to the site, and on their return they bore their testimony to the same effect. And thus, all through the Saturday and all through Easter day, all the city everywhere was occupied in going backwards and forwards, time after time, and everybody was in excitement and astonishment at the extraordinary event. And so the earnestness of their devout fervor was urging all to destroy the Jews, and they would, there and then, have laid hands upon them, but that, restrained by fear of the Sheriff John, they kept quiet for a while. While things were going on this way for two days in the city, the aforementioned Henry de Sprouston, with his wife and family, on the Monday after Easter Sunday, got ready to carry out his intention, and hastened, about the first hour of the day, to where the blessed martyr's body was still lying in the open air. But when he got to the place, forewarned by a divine impulse, as I think, he decided that he must take another course than he had intended, because he was afraid to carry out his intention without the bishop's license. Accordingly, with all reverence he adopted another plan, and buried the body in the place where it had been found. But this fact, I think, ought to be mentioned, that while the body was being carried by the hands of those who were going to bury it, suddenly such a fragrant perfume filled the nostrils of the bystanders as if there had been growing there a great mass of sweet-smelling herbs and flowers. And I do not think that it was without the divine disposal that the burial happened to take place there, to the intent that afterwards the body might be removed for greater veneration, and though he was translated, yet in this place, too, the divine favor wished to make him illustrious by many tokens of his virtues. How the priest Godwin gave heed to know whether it were he himself. When the illustrious martyr's body was buried, the report got abroad through certain boys who had been his companions formerly that this was the body of William, who formerly used to have dealings with the Jews, and at last the news came to the ears of Godwin the priest, whose surname was Sturt, and who had, as his wife, the martyr's aunt. And when he learnt from the martyr's companions that it really was so, he took care the next day to visit the place with his son Alexander, then a deacon, and with Robert the martyr's brother, first in order to make sure if it were he himself, and also if he were recognized, that he might straightway perform the obsequies. But because he could not be recognized till the earth that was laid upon him had been removed, they determined to dig him up. However, while they were digging and throwing out the earth, when they got near the body, suddenly the earth before their very eyes seemed by some strong force to be lifted up from below and, as it were, to be thrown out. 
at which sight immediately a great horror and amazement thrilled the hearts of the diggers, and falling back they desisted from their undertaking. But on the priest calling them back they took courage, and again set themselves to the work that they had left. But when the same thing happened again, the same way as before, no wonder that it seemed to them that here was one who was not yet dead, but alive. Whereupon the priest bade them make haste, for he believed that he would find him still alive, and they, making all the speed they could, when now they were almost touching the body with their hands. On the soil being removed, the face was exposed, and it was plainly shown whose it was. Brother recognized brother, and friends their friend. Brother wept for brother dead, and friends bewailed their murdered friend. The more they had loved him living, so much more did they grieve that he had been slain. And when they drew near, they were greatly astonished, because though so many days had passed by since the time when they suspected he had been put to death, yet there was absolutely no bad smell perceptible. But what seemed more deserving their wonder was, that though there was never a flower there nor any sweet-smelling herb growing thereabout, yet there the perfume of spring flowers and fragrant herbs was wafted to the nostrils of all present. At last, having celebrated the obsequies, they replaced the earth that had been dug up and disturbed, and commending the soul and body to God, they went their way. Concerning the Warning to His Aunt in a Vision When the priest Godwin got home, he related to his wife, Leviva, who was the boy's aunt, exactly what had happened. She, immediately clapping her hands and breaking out into loud cries, It is true, said she, and my dream was only too true, which came to me on the Saturday before Palm Sunday, when the Lord was pleased plainly to reveal to me, ignorant though I be, the most certain truth of this business. I saw in a vision of the night, and lo, as I was standing in the high street of the marketplace, suddenly the Jews came upon me, running up from all sides, and they surrounded me as I fled, and they seized me. And as they held me, they broke my right leg with a club, and they tore it away from the rest of my body, and running off with all speed, it seemed that they were carrying it away with them. Oh, only too true forewarning of my vision! Oh, happy should I be if it were not a true dream that I had dreamt! But in sooth, O oh my Lord, as I tell of this dream before thee who hearest me, I declare that I heard thee say that soon it would happen to me to lose one of my dear ones through the Jews, and one whom I certainly loved more than all others. Lo, what thou didst foretell, I feel now has happened. Behold, exactly as thou didst foretell, it has fallen out to my sorrow. She scarce had finished speaking when a cold shiver thrilled her inmost marrow, a pallor passed over her face, consciousness left her, and like one dead she slipped from the hands of the bystanders and fell to the earth. After a while, the woman, recovering consciousness, rose and, bursting out weeping, she bewailed the nephew whom she had so greatly loved. From that day, for a long while afterwards, she could scarcely be restrained from her lamentations, and she kept on lamenting him whom she had so dearly and vehemently loved. Concerning the Lamentations of the Mother Just at this time, as the report was spreading, the story of her son's murder came to the ears of his mother, who, naturally overwhelmed by the sad tidings, straightway swooned as if she were dead. After a while, however, recovering herself, she without delay hastened to Norwich to inquire into the truth of the matter. But when she learnt by the relation of many people that her son was dead and buried in the wood, Immediately, with torn hair and clapping of hands, she ran from one to another, weeping and wailing through the streets like a madwoman. At last, going to the house of her sister, whom I mentioned before, and inquiring now of the priest Godwin, now of her sister, she could learn no more about the circumstances and the truth than that he had been slain in an extraordinary way. But from many probable indications and conclusions, she was convinced that they were not Christians but Jews who had dared to do the deed. With a woman's readiness of belief, she easily gave credence to these conjectures. Whereupon she at once burst forth into denouncing the Jews with words of contumely and indignation. Sometimes she behaved like a mother moved by all a mother's love. Sometimes she bore herself like a woman with all a woman's passionate rashness. And so, assuming everything to be certain which she suspected, and asserting it to be a fact as though it had actually been seen, 
She went through the streets and open places, and carried along by her motherly distress, she kept calling upon everybody with dreadful screams, protesting that the Jews had seduced and stolen away from her her son and killed him. This conduct very greatly worked upon the minds of the populace to accept the truth, and so everybody began to cry out with one voice that all the Jews ought to be utterly destroyed as constant enemies of the Christian name and the Christian religion. So, what happens next is that the priest Godwin Sturt becomes a demagogue, uh, leading the charge against the Jews of Norwich through rabble-rousing speeches. But he's ultimately unsuccessful. The royal authorities, in the person of the sheriff, don't take action, and no lynch mobs are formed. Uh, Indeed, the murder rather falls off the public radar until an incident about five years later, in which the followers of a local knight assassinate one of the prominent Jews, a man to whom, as it happened, the knight owed a lot of money. This led the Jewish community to appeal to the king for justice. Uh, At this point, the bishop of Norwich, William Turb, uh, acting in the knight's defense, raised the issue of the murder of William as an injustice that must be set right before one could even begin to talk about awarding the Jews some sort of compensation. Uh, As before, the secular authorities aren't persuaded, or as Thomas would have it, are bribed into submission. Uh, But the pot has been stirred, and soon you have a couple of locals having miraculous visions of William, and shortly afterwards Thomas of Monmouth joins Norwich Cathedral Priory and is soon the bishop's henchman for drumming up support for their local martyr, and soon enough the cult of William is booming business. But that's getting beyond our story for today. Uh, And even the consequences for the Jews of Norwich is a bit beyond our topic. What I think is almost inescapably striking about this narrative of the discovery of William's corpse is that if you just clipped out a handful of comments from Thomas, the whole thing would read as a perfectly straightforward and even self-aware tale of how mass hysteria can sweep through a community. Once you strip the narrative of all the later accretions, um, a servant who claims to have watched through a crack in the door to see William murdered but didn't bother to tell this story to anyone until years later, or the man who remembers seeing the Jews carrying a body into the woods but saved this recollection for a deathbed speech, and other similarly dubious assertions. Uh, Once you drop the details of the story that were almost certainly invented only around the time that Thomas started collecting stories about William, then you can see in this passage exactly where the belief that the Jews committed this crime began, a belief that fundamentally shaped and distorted all future developments in the story. And it begins with the forester, Henry de Sprouston, beholding a horribly abused body and deciding that no Christian could do so horrible a thing, especially so close to Easter, which leads to the corollary that it must have been done by someone who holds Easter, and by extension Christ, in contempt. Now, this reasoning proves persuasive to at least some members of a xenophobic medieval community, uh, though probably not as many as Thomas suggests. And it's from this knee-jerk reaction that so much of the rest of the anti-Semitic energy flows. There are more allegations that come from Godwin Sturt, the uncle, uh, who further cements the Jewish angle with circumstantial reports from other members of his family, including the prophetic dream of his wife that we just heard. And he may well have had other motives for pursuing this particular line, uh, which I'll come to in a bit. But really, it all just starts from pure horror at the brutality of this crime. Now, it may seem a little odd in the context of this podcast, uh, where brutal death and horrific tortures are commonplaces, that medieval people might be shocked as much as we are at a murder like this, or maybe even a little more shocked than we are, given the degree to which cable news has probably desensitized us somewhat to serial killings and sex crimes. Of course, Many of the stories I present on this podcast were written quite deliberately for the purpose of shocking the reader. Uh, We shouldn't assume a medieval reader would just yawn at many of these stories as though 
they were just quotidian reports, um, all, even though that's one of our stereotypes of the Middle Ages. Uh, but nonetheless, it is in its way refreshing to see a community so recognizably rattled by an apparently sadistic murder. In a little while, I'll touch on some of the theories about the murder itself, but before that I want to go back to how Thomas, as a writer, tells this part of the story. It is very strange. By all other evidence, he is firmly in the William was martyred by Jews camp. His life's work as William's own special sacrist comes to depend upon it. It makes sense in context that he would agree with the assertion that the monstrousness of the crime proves that it must have been committed by some capital O other. Uh, what doesn't make as much sense is why he would then so plainly portray the spread of this news with all the tropes of rumor and panic spreading through a population. You would think that all he needs to say is that the guilt of the Jews was plain and everyone agreed, but they got away with the crime because they bribed the sheriff. How does it help his position in any way to bring so much attention to how this truth was largely spread by excitable young men and a hysterical, and in this case the misogynist connotations of that word are very much in play, a hysterical mother? These tumultuous crowds rushing hither and thither, these are images of busyness that did not have positive values in the medieval moral system, uh, especially from a monkish perspective. So why would Thomas paint this vital part of his story with such negative qualities? Well, we might float a couple of possible answers. First, we must recognize that even with what may seem to be equivocal details, Thomas is quite firm that this rumor, even recognizing it as rumor, was nonetheless spurred on by the divine will. So, yes, people jumped to conclusions and were persuaded by the credulous and rash allegations of a grieving mother, but this is all okay because God was using exactly these methods to spread the truth. It's a tidy little theological out for Thomas. Uh, but again, rather than having to justify this panic, he could have simply elided it. When I said that if you just dropped a few phrases, this story would be a fairly objective portrait of mob panic, it's these God-willed-it phrases I'm referring to. Another possibility is that, rhetorically, Thomas actually is deliberately using the fervor of the crowd to create pathos, to convey some of that emotional intensity to the reader. This fervor isn't rationally persuasive, but it might still serve Thomas's purpose in making the reader share in that raw emotion. In other words, the images of the restless, horrified, and ultimately furious mob are there so that we might share in those powerful feelings, not for us to stand above them and critique them. And, of course, Thomas still has his divine will argument available to dismiss uh, the rational objections. But the dominant interpretation from scholars on why Thomas includes details that aren't necessarily favorable to making William's martyrdom an unquestionable fact is that a lot of the people Thomas is writing for were, indeed, actively questioning it. Thomas announces this endemic skepticism himself. A bit later on in his book, he writes... When these first fruits of the miracles wrought by the merits of the blessed William were brought to light, there were many, ungrateful for the divine benefits or the signs shown, who mocked at the miracles when they were made public, and said that they were fictitious. Yea, these, hard and slow of heart to believe, suggested that the blessed boy William was likely to be of no special merit after his death, who they had heard was a poor, neglected little fellow when alive. Others there are who, because they had known him as a poor, ragged little lad picking up a precarious livelihood at his tanner's business, think scorn of him, and so can by no means believe that such a one with no previous merits should have attained to such eminent excellence. And there are some, too, who, though they saw with their own eyes that he, whatever he was, was cruelly murdered, or heard it with their ears, or read it in this present record, yet say, we are indeed certain of his death, but we are entirely uncertain and doubtful by whom and why and how he was killed. 
so we neither presume to call him a saint nor a martyr. And since it is not the pain, but the cause that makes the martyr, if it be proved that he was killed in punishment by Jews or anyone else, who could confidently believe that this lad courted death for Christ's sake or bore it patiently for Christ's sake when it was inflicted upon him? To all these equally and to each severally we will make answer. As he indicates, Thomas goes on from here to re-argue the merits of his case. But the significant idea here is that, unlike many other hagiographers, Thomas has serious constraints on how far he can rewrite the details of his story, not only because it happened locally and within living memory, but also because there remains a faction in the town and in the priory that are still not on board with William's cult, and who, one supposes, could challenge any details that Thomas misrepresents. In fact, we've seen a bit of this division before on this show. The conflict Thomas has with Prior Elias over putting candles and a special carpet on William's tomb uh, that we saw back in episodes 7 and 8 is part of this. Jessup proposes that Elias was probably the head of a faction within the Priory that resisted uh, the bishop and the attempts to establish William's cult because they didn't believe he was actually a martyr. It's after Elias's death and the election of a much more William-friendly prior that the cult really starts to properly take off. And so, perhaps, we have this vivid depiction of a crowd almost frenzied with rumor-mongering as a kind of sop being thrown to the skeptics. It's Thomas saying, Yes, I will show you that I understand how you saw this event unfold. I'll give it to you. But since subsequent miracles have proven what was really true, I'll use that fact to show why your continued skepticism is unfounded. I find this explanation for why Thomas uses the rhetoric he does to be very plausible. And it serves as a reminder and challenge to the stereotype of the Middle Ages as exceedingly credulous and ready to believe any old tall tale. Uh, history is written by the winners, as we know, and for many a medieval legend, this means that the voices of very real skeptics and doubters have often been scrubbed out of the history. But we do, from time to time, run into texts where the skeptical position is preserved. The only section of today's text that I still wonder about is Thomas's depiction of Elviva, William's mother, which I don't see discussed much by the scholars I've been reading. He presents her in a kind of catalog of medieval misogynist tropes, her rashness, her intemperate passion, her willingness to believe whatever she hears. He really seems to be going out of his way to present her in a very negatively valenced way. Now, maybe this is also an attempt to employ pathos. After all, the overwhelming emotion of grieving mothers and widows is a staple of classical rhetoric and poetry. So perhaps the misogynistic characterizations are not meant to be especially judgmental, but are simply part and parcel of fitting her into a stock type of the mother racked by grief. I would say that's a sufficient enough answer, um, but if you want to go down a conspiracy theory road a bit, and in a true crime narrative, who doesn't, uh, there is another possibility. It's possible that, though he needs them for his story, Thomas doesn't really like William's family. They are, in fact, kind of his rivals. They're the other group that has the best claim to William as their own. Indeed, we learn much later in Thomas's book that William's uncle Godwin the priest has kept the teasel and has been using it as a relic, dipping it in water, which he then uses to dispense cures. And he's doing this for profit. Thomas gives us a little miracle story of Godwin suffering for this. Uh, his chickens all mysteriously die, after which he stops charging people for their cures. But there's certainly a sense of, of a rival authority in Godwin and his relatives, which it certainly doesn't hurt Thomas uh, and the Priory Shrine to puncture and deflate a bit. Well, this has been an extraordinarily long episode, so I must be wrapping things up. Uh, but I would like to end with a quick amateur criminological look at the discovery of the body. First of all, one more point about Godwin, uh, whom we've already seen profiting from his nephew's alleged sanctity. 
John M. McCullough suggests that Godwin may have jumped on the Blame the Jews bandwagon right from the beginning with gain in mind. He says, quote, Godwin may well have sought to turn a family tragedy, the murder of a child by an unknown sadist, into a financial windfall, accusing the Jews of the crime in the hope of gaining compensation or at least a substantial bribe to drop the charge. End quote. Some others have suggested, as would probably be the first thought of anyone familiar with modern police investigations, that Godwin himself or someone in his family was the real murderer. After all, when a child is killed, the first suspects are usually the family. Thomas does not suggest any specific signs of sexual abuse in his account, but that is something we would tend to expect to see, according to our modern understanding of what's common in these kinds of child murders. Whether Thomas would omit such a thing out of some sense of decorum is, is unclear, though one would think its propaganda value would outweigh qualms about propriety. Anyway, we might well be suspicious of the uncle of a fatherless adolescent boy. Um, oh, and by the way, the fact that Godwin was a married priest was not yet as scandalous an occurrence at this point in history as it would be later. Um, but it wouldn't have been a point in his favor either. We might also remember that the story of William going off into town with a stranger comes to us almost exclusively from his own family members, uh, who easily could have fabricated it. And the fact that the body wasn't actually buried or concealed in the forest, but left out in the open, is the kind of detail a modern profiler might interpret as suggesting a bond between the victim and the killer. The body is left to be found and to be given a proper, and indeed, we might even say, a Christian burial. For me, though, the two strangest events are the people who find the murdered body but don't go straight away to tell anybody. In medieval Scandinavian law, it was a crime not to report the discovery of a body. I, I don't know if such a law applied in England, uh, but one would expect that there might at least be some suspicion. Our first discoverer, though, I think we can safely dismiss. It seems most likely to me that the nun Lagarda's trip to visit William's body probably originated as, at best, a dream vision that, in the retelling, transformed into an actual trip into the forest. Um, it could also be a false memory or an outright fabrication, of course. The person that intrigues me is the nameless woodcutter. He's out there cutting his wood, and suddenly a forester rides up to him, you know, a, a fish and game warden slash park ranger, basically. And that's when he says, Oh, by the way, I found this dead body nearby. Maybe you should look into it. Is peasant life really that callous that he's perfectly content to finish doing his job before he goes and tells anybody? Maybe so. But it seems very odd and suspicious to me, and doubly odd that Thomas spends so much time describing other people's first encounter with the holy body in the wood, but the woodcutter's discovery of the body is unremarked upon. He disappears, if not from the scene, then at least from the narration, without a trace. It's easy to see why this story has attracted a fair amount of armchair sleuthing, since Thomas doles out so many little striking details and clues, but never quite enough information to put a whole picture together, at least not without God's will to fill in all the gaps. And I'll conclude with two quotes. The first is from Jessup, writing in 1896, who characterizes Thomas thusly. Quote, a man may start by wishing for truth without going the right way to arrive at it, and may end by embracing falsehood till he cannot bear to part with it. That's a bit of wisdom that's as applicable today as it was in the 19th century and as it was in the 12th. The second quote comes from a well-known sage writing in uh, 1960. The tools of conquest do not necessarily come with bombs and explosions and fallout. There are weapons that are simply thoughts, attitudes, prejudices, to be found only in the minds of men. For the record, prejudices can kill and suspicion can destroy. 
and a thoughtless, frightened search for a scapegoat has a fallout all of its own for the children and the children yet unborn. And the pity of it is that these things cannot be confined to the twilight zone. So what was our riddle last time? Oh yes, it was a bit of playground rudeness. Uh, It was this. What time of the year may maidens most with their honesty fiest in the church? Where fiest means fart. Uh, This riddle comes from the 16th century De Mons Joyeuse, and the answer given in that text is, quote, In Lent season, for then every saint's nose and face is covered so that they smell nothing. Uh, This is a reference to the practice of covering up the statues of the saints as well as the crucifix during Lent. So, ladies, if you are hoping to fart in church, you've missed your chance. You'll have to wait until next year. Here's a riddle for springtime. Two times two a clatter make, one twitches and two dance. Once more. Two times two a clatter make, one twitches and two dance. What is that describing? I'll be back with an answer and a shorter episode in about two weeks, give or take. Until then, you can reach out to me in the usual places via Twitter at MDT Podcast, via email by writing to Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com, or by leaving comments at our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com, where you can find more information and older episodes. And that's more than enough for now. Take care, and thanks for listening. <laughs>